Hi, Lisa. Hey, hi, Adam. How are you? Hey, we're already live. So welcome to the show. Wonderful. <laughs> hi, everyone. <laughs> awesome. Nice to be here. Yeah, thank you so much, so much for joining us. Uh, let's see. Can you turn your audio up a little bit? Do you have any way to do that? Does this work better? Can you hear me okay? That got better. Yes. Thank you. Okay. I'll also talk loud. There we <laughs> go. Perfect. Awesome. <laughs> All right. So let's get started. So welcome everyone to Just Dow It, the podcast for people starting DAOs. I'm Adam Miller and I'm your host. I'm the CEO and a co-founder of MyDAO, which provides legal entity solutions for DAOs. And prior to starting MyDAO, I did consulting for people starting and operating DAOs. As you can tell, we are recording live, so apologies in advance for any technical difficulties. And then this will go out to all of our feeds uh, later today. As always, the first half of the show will be the Just Dow It News Report, where I will read uh, recent Dow News headlines, and Lisa and I will dive into the headlines and share our hot takes, what matters about these stories, what doesn't, what do we agree or disagree with, etc. And then in the, in the second half of the show, we will go into an in-depth interview with Lisa, which will be especially fun because this is your second time on the show. And so we'll get a little bit deeper into maybe what's changed over the past year, what's new, what's coming and, and, and all that, all that fun stuff. So uh, Lisa, welcome to the show. Uh, before we dive into the news, would you give a brief introduction to yourself and what you're working on? Yes, I would love to. Okay, so my big passion in this space is studying leaders and how leadership looks in this brave new world of work. And a lot of the work that I've done has been as a founding member of Talent DAO, um, which started now two years ago. And also what I've recently been working on over the last six months is interviewing 41 different token engineers with token engineering commons. So really looking at the practices, mm. needs and challenges of the beautiful people that are, you know, doing the quality work in this space. Mm, very interesting. So the token engineering goes beyond DAOs. That's really all kinds of crypto tokens? Yes. Yep, exactly. Mm. Beyond the DAO world, but definitely implications for it. Okay. And is that a technical, like literally, like how do you uh, physically, you know, engineer the code to launch tokens? Does it go beyond that into the social issues? Yes, that is part of this landmark study is to really look at this space that is really in its infancy, still very much so forming. And it has the technical aspects of the engineering process end to end, but it also has the very social transformational side of it, of how do we communicate and how do we work to basically not just, um, you know, create a bunch of Ponzi scheme um, processes in order for us to lend credibility to the work that's being done in this space mm -hmm. as well. Cool. All right. Well, I look forward to digging into that in more detail uh, later in the show. But let's turn to the uh, Just Dow It News report. So for the first story of the week, this is from Cointelegraph. And the headline is, Aragon Association to Dissolve will disperse $155 million in assets to token holders. The governing body for the Aragon OS DAO creation tool will wind down transferring its, its assets to token holders. So listeners may remember, this is a follow-up to a story from May-ish when a group called the Risk-Free Value Raiders attempted to take control of the Aragon treasury by purchasing their native token, the ANT token, ANT token, and trying to outvote the rest of the association. 
So this is commonly referred to as a 51% attack in some circles. I think maybe that's a little different because usually people talk about a 51% attack in the context of a blockchain where you get 51% of the staking or, or the, the work. Um, but still, the idea was for this, this group to take over enough voting power to then vote to give themselves the treasury. And, and it turns out, I think this was one of the major reasons why they had to shut down. And some other DAOs are having similar challenges where the market value of the tokens was less than the value of the treasury. And so there's a financial incentive. If you can buy half the tokens or 51% of the tokens without driving the price up too much, then you can then pay yourself out 100% of the assets, which is worth even more than 100% of the tokens uh, market cap. And, and, you, and you've made money by basically draining the treasury. Um, you know, another DAO, uh, the Nouns DAO recently faced a somewhat similar issue in that the market value of their tokens was also less than the value of their treasury. And so there's a financial incentive, even just for the members of the DAO themselves to potentially vote to just close down and give themselves all the money. Um, now, in that case, in the nouns ecosystem, there is a, a veto right in most of the DAOs, including nouns. And so the veto were, was allowed to say, well, we're not going to just do that. And this led to a whole uh, you know, complex situation of forking the DAO, which we talked about, I think, a little bit on, on the last podcast. But in this case, uh, the, the organization voted to uh, disperse the funds uh, to the ant holders rather than taking the, the chance of someone else performing this type of attack. Now, there's a little bit more going on here, and I'm kind of curious, Lisa, if you're familiar with the Aragon ecosystem, because I know some people who are very close to it. And this has also been a case of a lot of, comp uh, of drama. And, and I don't mean yeah. to sound, make drama make it sound like it's less than it is. This was like business fighting uh, and disagreement and a lot of complexity around you know, who had the power and who was responsible for what and what was the role of the foundation that was holding this money versus the role of all of the people who were actually working in the ecosystem. Um, you know, I've heard some people go so far as to say the foundation had already become irrelevant because it was mm. uh, basically not functioning effectively and not even contributing to the project. And so the people who are actually building Aragon were not even the foundation in the first place. And so they might as well just wind it down and distribute the treasury. So anyways, let me stop there, Lisa. Curious your thoughts, and especially if you do have any you know, unique uh, insight into what, what really went down here. Yeah, so um, a lot of similar insight to what you had, I think. Um, even zooming out, a lot of the people who have followed Aragon from the beginning, it's an interesting leadership case study because you have this group and this organization that's really almost gone through three waves of major leadership change or complete reformation as an organization. And I think what's important about that is to know that even in its infancy, it was an organization that had leadership challenges and had disputes and dissonance on how it should be run. And not the healthy kind. And I think mm. anybody that you talk to that's been involved with Aragon or who's had like a front row seat to it knows that um, the word toxic all often came up, um, that the way things were handled were not always in a way that made for productive conflict. It led to a lot of unproductive ways of working. And so that would be like the part that I would share is that this has been 
since the beginning that it hasn't always had the most healthy of work environment around it. And so these issues kept arising. And I think for a lot of people, seeing it come to a head, it was almost an inevitable conclusion. Yeah. And it's one of the interesting things about Aragon was that it's one of the few DAO platforms that was launched before the prior bull market, which meant that they were able to do an ICO, uh, raise tons of money. The token flew, you know, flew up in value along with all the other tokens at the time. And so a project that probably would have only been able to raise a million dollars from venture capitalists, if that, because VCs were not really investing in, in DAOs at the time, raised hundreds of millions of dollars um, just because of you know the the frothiness of the market. And so now, yeah, I guess that introduces complexities of its own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the other thing too is it's also like you said, it, they're not the only ones facing this. Where the incentives um, breed maybe negative behavior for the organization's longevity or its sustainability or its health, and so I think it's really important too to zoom out and to also acknowledge that in in the market that we're in, sometimes closing up shop might be actually the smart strategic decision. And so it's not one that people make lightly. It's not one that doesn't take courage. So there's also something to be shared about the fact that we're now getting to a maturity within the DAO ecosystem that we're needing to reconcile with what projects are working and which ones aren't. And what we choose to do might be a sunk cost fallacy of letting some continue to limp on forward when maybe we should be making the stronger mm. decision to, to dissolve. Yeah, good point. I mean, I don't know if it's exactly true, but people like to say that 90% of all startups fail and DAOs have only been around so long that they're all startups. <laughs> so yeah. we should expect a number of them to fail or, or, or exit gracefully or, uh, or whatever. Um, yeah. Yep. So it makes sense. I guess one of the interesting things here is the, the and since this is the business I'm in, the legal entity side of things um, where the foundation itself was separate in some ways from the project. Like just because the foundation is shutting down, actually someone from Aragon told me it's having zero effect on the project um, because the people working on the project is more like the DAO, right? It's the people who are mm -hmm. kind of organically contributing, whether they're contributing business development, marketing, leadership, uh, de develop software development, you know, uh, whatever it is, this thing is still running along and they're releasing new features. And, and my hope, certainly, since this is one of the early DAO tooling platforms, is that they'll continue to be very successful as a protocol and as a project and as a DAO, even though the foundation's disappearing. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a, a, a good, a good uh, 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 transition point to the next story. And um, I don't usually do this, but since my company was in the news, we're going to do a news story about MyDAO for the next story. And this one is from Coindesk. And the headline is, Marshall Islands further strengthens law that made DAOs legal entities. The island nation cuts processing time for registration, provides immunity for DAOs using open source software. All right. Well, first of all, you know, immunity is an interesting word. I, I had not noticed that before until I just read it, because you never get full immunity, right? I mean, uh, in, in any situation, there's always more nuance to it uh, than that. You know, just because DAOs are using open source software doesn't make them immune. Um, what what they're talking about, though, and one of the interesting things about uh, this new law uh, that 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 I wrote with the help of lawyers from from all over the world, uh, and that a senator from the Marshall Islands proposed and 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 passed 
recently. Um, one of the unique elements of it is we try to address this issue of what, what's the difference between the protocol and the DAO. Right. And, and mm -hmm. I think the convention so far and what everyone is hoping will be the legal treatment all over the world is that the, the, the protocol's activity is not the DAO's activity. Just because the DAO maybe wrote the code, just because it launched the smart contract, just because it's marketing the project and maybe even providing a front end does not mean that the activity of the protocol is actually the activity of the DAO. So for example, if, it were if we're talking about a DeFi protocol, right, money is flowing through that protocol all the time. People are trading one token for another, they're paying fees, et cetera. The DAO is not a accounting for that flow of money as if that money's flowing through the DAO, it's a separate concern. Um, and so what we did with this law was we said, you know, something like just because the DAO is, is governing and supporting open source software on, you know, running on the protocol does not mean that it's responsible for the use of that protocol, right? And the activity that takes place around that protocol. So um, I do think that's meaningful. Um, the, another quote from the article uh, well, let me actually let me just pause for a second, Lisa. Th this one maybe is uh, was a little bit self-serving, but uh, any thoughts on uh, the the new uh, th th this news story? No, I think it's deeply meaningful. That's what was running through my head as you were sharing it, because um, even just um, a kind of totally separate industry analogy. My husband works in the board game industry. And when you get something like the board game industry, you send all these little pieces around and they have to pretty much put on every single box to like not swallow stuff, not to stuff mm. like the legalese around um, what can be shipped or done. Um, just because mm. you have a product or a protocol doesn't mean you're responsible for everything that's happening with that or that's done with it or how it's used and how people choose to adapt it or manipulate it on the back end. And so I feel like it's just a really good step in a normal direction to want mm -hmm. to limit the exposure to people who are actually doing the work in the DAO that really believe in something to be able to advance that. And so that's one thing yeah. that was going through my head is, does this limit the exposure? Is that really like the ultimate goal with it is that people can work in DAOs for protocols and ultimately not have the exposure to what might happen with the protocol? Yeah, and I'll say there's kind of a couple layers of separation. So first of all, just by having an, a, any kind of legal entity, including this DAO LLC, you're protecting the individual members from liability associated with the project. So even if the DAO LLC was held responsible for the activity of the protocol, the individual people would not, as long as we're talking about a situation that does not pierce the corporate veil. So when there's fraud or criminal activity involved, doesn't matter what how many legal entities you have, you could get put in jail, you could get personally fined, et cetera. But if we're talking about normal day-to-day -day business activity where everyone is 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 operating with good intentions and trying to follow the law, et cetera, then yes, that cor that that corporate veil will protect you, even if the DAO was held responsible for the protocol. What we're trying to do is take it to another level where it's not even just about protecting the people. That's already been been covered, mm -hmm. but this is even about protecting the organization because of the nature of software that's running on the blockchain, right? Once the DAO puts it out there, now I can see arguments for why you might say, well, I mean, there's got to be, if, if you put something out into the world that causes a bunch of harm, there's got to be some kind of 
some kind of liability there. And I think we will have to figure out over time how we do hold people responsible for stuff that they just wrote, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact is that once you put it out there, you're not in, in control of it anymore. And no amount of the government finding you, suing you, putting you in jail can actually turn off that software. And in addition mm -hmm. to that, everyone in the world can see every line of code, can, can, is choosing whether to interact with that protocol or not. Um, and then through the protocol is interacting directly with other users. And, and, and the DAO is no longer involved in those transactions in any way. And so mm -hmm. there, I think there's good reason why we might want to keep uh, to separate or, or, or remove the liability of the organization from what's actually taking place in the protocol. Um, I, mm -hmm. I think this is going to be a really complicated legal issue in a few years. I don't even think I mean, like very few governments that are regulating crypto have even mentioned DAOs yet in their plans, maybe about 10 <laughs> countries, let alone, you know, pass yeah. DAO specific legislation. It's happened in the Marshall Islands, in the United States, and in one other country we'll talk about in a second. Um, but um, uh, but it is it is going to be an interesting thing to address. Like, who, who do you hold responsible, if anyone, for an autonomous piece of software? Mm hmm. You know, what's fascinating about that is with the token engineers we interviewed, they talked a lot about the fact that if you look at token engineering, like a more traditional thing, like civil engineering, you actually had people who would like sign their name on a contract, on a sheet of paper, mm. basically saying like, I'm responsible if this bridge collapses. And so just this notion of like ethics, liability, responsibility, they're I think going to be mm. only more major themes over the next few years. Yeah. And, you know, it reminds me of an interesting thing someone brought up with me recently, which is, you know, l let's say you're, you're a company that's going to build a project uh, and you want it to serve people all over the world and you want them to trust you because otherwise they're not going to use the project. If you go to a jurisdiction that's known for, let's say, being on a terrorist blacklist and is known for being a tax haven and is known for having like regulations that aren't enforced or no regulations the customers know that that's where your organization is based. That's where your DAO is based, for example, they might not want to work with you, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't always make sense to try to pick the jurisdiction with the least regulations or to create the project in a way that you're not taking responsibility for it, because then maybe people will be less likely to want to use the product in the first place. And mm -hmm. so there, there could be situations where the DAO does want to say, look, we are taking, like we are, to your point, we are signing our name on this you know, protocol because we want you to trust it. We want you to know that we will be held liable if something goes wrong. So I, I wonder the extent to which we'll see people taking actions like that. Mm -hmm. Speaking of other jurisdictions that are doing things related to DAOs, let's talk about Abu Dhabi. So this is an article from Cointelegraph and the headline is, Abu Dhabi pioneers DLT regulation for DAOs and Web3 innovations. Abu Dhabi aims to become a crypto hub alongside Dubai in a move that's part of a larger goal to foster initiatives in the blockchain and digital asset realm. Um, another line from the article. Abu Dhabi, the second most populous emirate in the United Arab Emirates, has introduced a formal regulatory framework for decentralized autonomous organizations and other digital ledger entities as it doubles down on its ambition to be a leader in digital asset innovation within the Middle East. Um, so 
you know, I, I love to hear about other jurisdictions doing stuff like this. I wasn't able to find, dig deep enough to find the specifics of the law. Uh, maybe I'll do that for, for a future show and, and compare it to the U.S. or the Marshall Islands. Um, but, uh, but this is great. You know, uh, one of the things this made me think of is uh, a place called uh, Prospera. Have you heard of Prospera, Lisa? No. So Prospera is a special economic zone in Honduras. It's on the island of, of Roatan, which some people have heard of because it's, it's a popular mm -hmm. scuba diving destination. Um, mm -hmm. It's a special economic zone that has been given the right to make its own economic law and regulations. So it does not have to follow Honduran uh, economic and corporate law. And so similar, I think, to what Abu Dhabi is doing here, but I don't know exactly the nature of Abu Dhabi and its relationship with the UAE, uh, the government of, of, of Prospera now gets to create its own uh, business laws and regulations from scratch. And what they've decided to do, actually, is they've decided to uh, tell companies that are Prospera companies, they can even propose their own regulatory framework if they want to, to be approved by the government of Prospera. And so already, for example, a bank, and this sounds scary, but I think it's actually really cool. A bank wrote its own regulatory framework based on banking regulations from all over the world, proposed it to the government, went through a long process of review. The government approved it and said, OK, we will regulate you according to this regulation that you wrote. And so that is such a cool new model um, for, for, for business and corporate you know, regulation that I, I just have a feeling, you know, if, if one state starts doing that, the other states will have to follow suit, right? They'll have to say, you know what? I mean, if, if there's a place you can go and write your own regulation, maybe we have to let you do the same thing. Otherwise, we're not going to have any people starting businesses here. And then each government still, you know, gets to decide, do they like the regulation? How are they going to enforce it, et cetera? So really exciting. Uh, what do you think, Lisa? Yeah, that's exciting. I still think one of the biggest value propositions of anything happening in the Web3 space is the high level of experimentation. You're getting so many case studies out of the work that's being done in this space that, like you said, it potentially is a new roadmap that creates a competitive landscape that eggs on other people to be experimenting much more than they would have in the past, to be um, entertaining much higher levels of autonomy and also, it's just a trend that you see in the workplace in general. It went from like top-down strategy and traditional organizations to now even those traditional organizations talk a lot more about crowdsource strategy and pushing decisions further down in organizations to get closer to the true decision makers, to the true consumers. And I feel like Web3, instead of a square peg in a round hole, is really a whole ecosystem that is inherently made to um, create experiments like that, to test and mm. learn, and to actually really be built in a way where the ethos and the whole mindset and skill set is actually coming around that outcome. And so yeah. I think it's really exciting. Hmm. That's, uh, you know, I love talking to you about this uh, corporate innovation stuff and how it, how it relates to DAO. So maybe I can dig into that for a second. You know, it, it, it reminds me of uh, a friend of mine who I will not name, um, who insists that, you know, in, in these corporate innovation environments, 
that they would not work if you actually gave all the power to the lower levels of the organization. That, you know, even though you want to crowdsource ideas and crowdsource even opinions and, and, and uh, I, I guess, some decisions, at the end of the day, there's no way to replace the, you know, smaller council of people who have worked at the company and in the industry for a long time, have all the context about the business's financials and strategy and tactics, have seen you know, innovation experiments in that environment over and over and over again, and that there's no way we're going to replace those types of experts with true decentralized decision making. Um, I mean, and I, I obviously I argue, <laughs> I argue with her, and I, I don't, ag I don't agree. Uh, certainly, there's something to it, but I, I think we are going to find a way. But I mean, what do you, what would you say to that, Lisa? Yeah, I think, I think that's maybe a fair opinion if you look at if you look backward, like if you look backward the last 100, 200 years, a lot of the way we looked at strategy and business, you could set a strategic plan for an entire year and not expect a lot of disruption. And it was, you know, you could be hired as like, say, a chief marketing officer at Coca-Cola and be told to like, keep the brand lively. And you could spend like a whole 10 years doing that. And then hooray, you like retire someday and people say, good job, you kept the brand alive. But now the way things are working is it demands a whole lot more strategic agility. Even in my past corporate life, you would watch year long plans go down to quarterly plans, go down to like your 90. Well, that would be your 90 day plan, but then it'd go down to like your 30 day plan. And then it'd go down to like scrum style, agile. Let's revisit this on a daily basis, make sure we're on track. And so this is a trend that's been happening for the last 20 years. And so for me, I would say that opinion is one that is looking backward and probably going to, if not already outdated, become stale pretty quickly. The way when you look forward at all the different changes and all the exponential technologies and all the requirements of us to absorb what's happening in the landscape and be responsive to it in a meaningful way, to me, that is entirely a decentralized network fit for how we might go about that. And it's the reason why a lot of traditional organizations are trying to harness that through mm. small agile teams and through different ways of working. And they're experimenting too, because they can't keep up. But what I think is powerful about DAOs is we understand the power of decentralization. And what we need to also do is acknowledge what's been working for DAOs, which is moving things forward with small groups of people. So like three, four people that are close to the work that do know what's going on, but aren't mired by, oh, this is what's worked in the past. We know better. I think that sort of hubris and ego are actually what's tripping up traditional world and why Web3 is more fit because we're quite frankly, more curious because we're not holding such strong assumptions. So I would encourage people to, to not hold the assumptions and to keep leaning into the curiosity but then also to, to make meaning in those small groups, because that's what's moving mm -hmm. DAOs and the work forward. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. And I always also think about if your project company, whether it's a company or however you think about it, is trying to attract great talent, you could say the best or you could say great. Is that is that great talent going to want to be a part of a project where everyone, the management promises they're going to listen to you? Or are they going to want to be a part of the project where you actually have some governance rights? Uh, and I think realistically, people are going to choose the latter. And maybe, you know, to my friend's point, maybe some things will suffer 
and and obviously things will be different. But at the end of the day, I think that's what people are going to choose. And so to me, it's it's kind of inevitable. And now we just have to do our best to figure out how to operate effectively in this new world that people are going to prefer. Mm -hmm. Completely. I think one of the biggest trends I've seen is you have people who, you know, through the pandemic or, or just through the evolution of a more digital world have seen the need for the when and where autonomy. I want to choose my hours. I want to choose where I work. I want to be able to work from anywhere. And now there's kind of like this new horizon that's emerged over the last decade that's been much more about the what and who. I want to be able to choose what I work on and I want to be able to choose who I work with. And those are some of like the biggest asks of even executives at traditional organizations. And those are absolutely the things that are inherently a huge benefit of working in Web3. Mm -hmm. So that's the part for me that I think, to your point, the latter will always attract the top talent. The people yep. who are building in this space, they're here because not just because they can work when and where they want. Um, that's actually leading to a lot of burnout and other issues. But mm. it's more so that they get to work on what they're excited about, what they're mm. engaged with, and they get to choose who they work with. And those sort of affiliations are, are things that build up their overall portfolio, excitement, fulfillment, engagement in the work that they're doing. And there's no surprise that people will continue to be attracted to that. Hmm. Okay, we got to take one more uh, a tangent because I'm curious about what you just said. Are are, are people because I you know I hear a lot about still work from home, right? And how has that gone? And some companies going back to working from the office, and others being completely work from home. It sounds like you you have a sense that in in the Web three type of environment, even that people are getting burnt out because they always work from home. Um, not just because they always work from home. It's actually um, one of the, I think, the key insights out of um, a study that I did at Talent DAO uh, called Leadership in DAOs. And it really focused on doing in-depth interviews with 23 leaders of these DAOs. And one of the big um, challenges is still burnout. And a lot of that's because mm. a lot of people entered into the space. They joined 30 discords. They got involved with three projects. They were super excited. They signed up for a lot of things. They're the people who take initiative. They are the pioneers. But all that stuff after a while, um, you know, mm. it's that sort of curve where you come in with all these possibilities and then you realize, oh, these DAOs have limitations, the tooling has limitations, the processes have limitations. But also, I personally have limitations. I'm not mm. getting a lot of sleep. And even though I'm done with work for one DAO, nobody's telling me like at the office to go go head on home. I'm at in DAO life where it's asynchronous and I could, if I wanted to, work at all hours because I'm working from people mm. all over the world. And so you kind of hit this dip and a lot of people have handled that really differently. Um, but it all is kind of under this guise of, of just getting burnt out. And most of what brings people through that dip is being more selective, more selective with the projects they say yes to, the work that they do take on and kind of getting back to honoring the autonomy that attracted them to Web3 in the first place of I get to choose what I work on. Mm. I'm not just doing something because it's on my calendar now. Um, I'm not just showing up because it's the DAO I've always been a part of. It's really the purpose-filled work and the people mm. that um, energize you that once you start getting selective and doubling down on that, people tend to find themselves out of their rut. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, it makes me think too. I think one thing that that I've been dealing with recently is just I, I'm I'm forgetting why I'm doing what I'm doing. 
And, and especially mm -hmm. forgetting that this is about, for me, it's about crypto. It's about all of it. Mm -hmm. And DAOs were where I found my greatest opportunity to contribute. And then even within DAOs, I found this very specific thing, which is legal entities for DAOs and, and legal issues for DAOs. And it is just so easy to just forget about why I'm here and just start thinking of it as a job again. And just all the mm -hmm. stuff I got to get done and the deadlines and trying to keep everything organized. Um, so just last night I saw on, it might've been Amazon Prime, a, a, a documentary called Cryptopia. And it's a, it's a second documentary by the same person. He did one in 2014 and now he did one in something like 2022. Um, and uh, it was so cool because it, it just went back to like, what is money? <laughs> what is what is a blockchain? Uh, why does this matter? What are all the use cases? And it was just so revitalizing because it really helped me get connected to to, to why we're here. Um, so I, I don't know what to make of that exactly in the context of of DAOs and leadership, but it's just I don't know. It's like even the coolest thing in the world that is, I'm just more grateful than anything else that I get to be a part of this. Just forget about it after a little while. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so true. And like you said, it can really kind of fall back into the it just feels like another job. It's a mm -hmm. stack of tasks that are kind of yanking you around. And I, I often <laughs> ask people to sit back and, and think through like, are you driving the work? Or is the work driving you? Mm -hmm. And just thinking through that, I think sometimes can can be an invitation to people to like get back in the driver's seat and figure out like, why am I here? And one of the biggest insights that I loved from, again, the leadership and doubt study was this idea that your own personal fortitude matters even more. So like I work mm. in the space of human development, that's my entire 15 year background. And that is also why I'm in this space is to help humans flourish and to learn what the future world of work looks like so it can be better for humans. Mm. And one thing that's clear to me is your own personal purpose matters way more than it did because you could join an organization mm. and have them hand it to you. But in the world of DAOs, like you need to know mm. what yours is. So that way you can resonate and find the DAOs that almost serve as these like gravitational pulls or magnets. Mm. But if you don't know your own purpose, you're going to end up signing up to a DAO and working on a purpose that may or may not resonate with you. And it will very quickly turn into just a job. And so still finding this sense of personal purpose seems to be even more of the tall order ahead of us as human beings when it comes to our work. Mm. And so this now becomes part of our work, not just a job, yeah. but learning who we are and what motivates us. It, pretty soon there is going to be a DAO for everything, right? Right. Like the DAO for this, the DAO for that. Every topic, every hobby, every community, every business, every charity, every cause, every piece of land, every, just every geography. <laughs> right. It's I mean, right now it already feels like there are a lot, but there's there's about to be 10 or 100 times as many, um, you know, given just the progress that we're making and with the market hopefully turning around mm -hmm. uh, in the right direction. Mm hmm. All right. The next article of the week is from the Daily Record. Uh, and the headline is Justicia Dow LLC filed demands for arbitration against Amazon for seizing and permanently retaining sellers funds. So, you know, I love this again because of the legal entity connection. Um, you know, one of the things you need a legal entity to be able to do as a Dow is to sue and be sued. 
but to sue. Mm -hmm. If you want to protect mm -hmm. intellectual property, if you mm -hmm. want to hold uh, your rights against someone, in this case, Amazon, uh, you have to have a legal entity. It's just it's the way the world works. And so in this case, it's a DAO with a DAO LLC, uh, in this case, uh, based out of Wyoming, that is now uh, taking Amazon to task. And uh, another interesting thing about this DAO is it's just a different model from anything I had heard of before. It's a group of people who individually had a problem with Amazon because Amazon had um, uh, taken, uh, seized their funds on the platform and shut down their, their stores. So, you know, situations where Amazon, you know, according to their terms of, of use, you know, if they basically at their own discretion, they can just take your money and shut down your store, which is kind of incredible. Um, and so these people, this happened to a bunch of people and all these people or a group of them have come together, started the DAO for this purpose, contributed the uh, the rights to arbitration to the legal entity, to the DAO LLC. And now they're collectively uh, going after Amazon uh, through this legal entity. So I just thought that was, was so interesting. Wow, I think that's one of the um, shining examples. People often ask like, what are, what's a great use case for DAOs and um, where are DAOs seeing success? And I think a lot of these almost like pop up, promote in the moment, sort of use cases are really fascinating where people come mm -hmm. together for a purpose right on the spot and can get so much done in a short amount of time in a way that actually has an infrastructure to support mm -hmm. them doing it. Mm -hmm. I love that line. I feel like that could be like uh, like the, 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 the brand, the tagline for DAOs come together for a purpose yeah on chain i guess do and do it yeah. with the blockchain <laughs> so that yeah. it's easier and faster and cheaper um, yeah awesome be okay. smart about it <laughs> yeah right and be smart about it and think yeah really it's not that easy but but maybe a good tagline um actually i'm just let me write that down real quick come together for a purpose okay very cool all right, uh, the next article of the week is not about legal entities or legal issues. Uh, this one is from crypto.news and the headline is, SuperDAO shuts down will return investor funds. Okay, so SuperDAO was uh, supposedly, and I'll, I'll explain why I say supposedly, was supposedly a DAO platform. It supposedly helped launch more than 2000 DAOs, uh, which I, do not believe for a second, um, and I'll, I'll say why. But first, just a little more context. So uh, according to its Crunchbase profile, SuperDAO raised $1 million in 2021 and then $10 million in 2022. And uh, what they've written uh, on their press release is, is the following in terms of the reason why they're shutting down. They said uh, the SuperDAO has ceased operations, saying that the crypto ecosystem has become much smaller than its initial ambition of becoming the next generation of Internet. So blaming uh, the industry for their uh, failure. Now, the reason why I, I have some negative things to say about SuperDAO is that over the past few years, I've heard the name come up a lot and I have often uh, 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 got in touch with the team and said, you know, t t tell me what, what you've got. And I've joined demos where I say, well, this is going to be a demo of our product. We're going to show you how it works. And then if you want to, you know, you can use it. And I go to the demo and all they show is a Figma board. So basically like a wireframe mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. they, they and, and, and you can tell the way they're going through this demo, they're trying to get user feedback on the design. 
and they're trying to figure out and it's it's less of a demo and it's more like what do you, you know what would you do here or how do, how do what do you feel about this screen and this was at a time where the company supposedly had working software but but they didn't all they had was was a wireframe and for some reason the team was still popular enough in Silicon Valley that they were able to not only raise a lot of money, but get the word out as if they were really making progress and really making headway. And so often the name would come up for me and someone would say, oh, have you heard of SuperDAO? Like that, they were helping a lot of people, you should check it out. As far as I could tell, they never did anything real. So it's always been a little bit of a, 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 a puzzle to me what's going on and, and anyways, now they're shutting down. So I don't know, Lisa, do you have any information about SuperDAO too? I, I'd love to be proven wrong if, if, uh, if I am wrong mm. about it. No, I can't prove you wrong. Um, I can only affirm you. I remember when SuperDAO came onto the scene and people were like, SuperDAO, do you know SuperDAO? It's one of the big platforms. It's launching so many, makes it easy. Um, I too never necessarily had people that I actually learned their DAO was launched via SuperDAO. And I've definitely been in calls that have felt like the ones you're talking about, um, not with SuperDAO specifically, but where people are telling you what you think is a product that they're selling you, but really they're just trying to gain user feedback. And I think the more the industry can be clear about what they're using people's time for, the better. Um, otherwise, like what often has felt like a inquiry has turned into what feels like a free advisory call. And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that just, um, I think uh, people go about stuff the wrong way where they start with ill will and apparently end with ill will. So I think in, in this case with SuperDAO, um, in general, I just think it's poor form to blame an industry or to say that you weren't big enough for us. So we're out. <laughs> I think that's a lot of just again kind of like the hubris and the ego that the space isn't wanting to be founded on and isn't going to thrive on and so yeah, yeah, it is what it is. And there's no way anyone helps launch 2,000 DAOs, and then Lisa and I have, have never heard of any yeah. of them. Unfortunately, yeah. there's, just, there's just no way. And no no one's helped anyone launch 2,000 DAOs. I mean, the most successful platforms might technically have 2,000 DAOs because a lot of people went there and said, oh, let me see what it's like to start a DAO, but just yeah. to experiment, right? I mean, even like the major platforms, Aragon, DAO House, Nouns, yep. you know, maybe have mm -hmm. 100 or 200 or a few hundred mm -hmm. um, you know, successful DAOs on their platform. And I do think there are probably 100,000 DAOs out there, most of them startups, um, mm -hmm. and, and most of them not using any anything on chain yet, because they're mm -hmm. still trying to figure out how they want to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, in more uplifting news, the final news story of the week. Uh, this is from Blockworks. And the headline is, Llama raises $6 million for role-based governance platform. The full stack app is hoping to move away from one token, one vote governance and make permissions more precise. So I think this touches on something that comes up a lot in the DAO industry, the, the community of, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands of us, but um, uh, in the DAO industry, right? Uh, one of the initial models for DAOs was uh, one, it was either one member, one vote or one token, one vote, right? And then you just vote on everything and you kind of figure everything out from there. And that's a massive innovation. I mean, what that unlocked is just incredible and includes everything that, that you know, that, that it was the capability that's making possible anything 
anything between full direct democracy and traditional corporate structures is made possible by, by the same thing. Um, but I think what all of us have learned is it's just not that simple, right? I mean, even if you do want to be one token, one vote, or you do want to be one member, one vote, there's so much more stuff you have to figure out if you're going to successfully run an organization of any kind, including a DAO. And so what, what Llama is doing, and Llama is known for its DeFi analytics platform. If you go to DeFi Llama, I'm assuming this is DeFi Llama, uh, there's a, uh, you know, you can see charts on the most successful DeFi projects or with the most TVL, total value locked, or the most uh, people voting, whatever it is. Um, so, so now what they're doing is they're building new DAO tooling. So similar to what supposedly SuperDAO was doing, similar to what Aragon does and, and has done a lot of, they're building DAO tooling with a focus on uh, some kind of role-based governance um, and so maybe let me just pause there and see, Lisa, what do you think about uh, role-based governance? I imagine that has a place in the world of, of figuring out how to uh, have successful DAOs. Yeah, I think it makes total sense. I think it's a proper evolution. I think some of the things that were um, exciting of, about one token, one vote, as you said, is almost like that pure democracy feel. But I think it got complicated very quickly where people realized not always the most informed people were making the decision. Also, um, not even people were able to keep up on the decisions or to even feel like their vote was rightfully placed, even though they were the ones exercising the vote. So I think there were some very common challenges that people surfaced pretty much right away. And so I'm even thinking back to the beginning of 2022 at ETH Denver, um, many people were talking about the fact that one token, one vote doesn't work anymore. And what I would say is it's not that it doesn't work anymore, but what Llama is doing is what I think makes total sense in the evolution of the infancy of DAOs, which is that we would expand out from initial concepts to getting a diversification of multiple ways of looking at governance. And so that way people can hone in. And ultimately, in any of these cases, my point of view on governance is that the work should lead the governance model. So what is trying to be accomplished? What is ultimately the purpose and the goal of this organization? And how do you structure a governance that enables that? And so having role-based governance, I think makes a lot of sense for a lot of organizations. Yeah. And I imagine, I mean, I've seen some impl implementations of what I would call role-based governance. It, it's, it, I think usually it's like, okay, the whole community, and maybe it is one token, one vote, votes to create a team that's mm -hmm. called the uh, marketing team, and they have the marketing role. And that, and then they grant that team either once a quarter, once a year, or maybe on a streaming uh, basis, some kind of budget. But then people with the marketing role, either collectively or individually, get to decide what to do with that money and, and what to do for, uh, as, as the marketing team, right? What type of marketing strategy, how to implement it. Um, and so uh, in some ways, role-based governance, uh, governance, I think, is like saying teams in yeah. organizations just on on chain yeah, yeah. i think um, the the at, extra added due to that is it is it is also more of that flat organizational model of you have a team but the person who might be you know interfacing with more of like a hub and spoke model isn't necessarily the leader who decides or who has power over authority but truly like you said it's a team and it's with that shared leadership and you might have one person that serves as a liaison or a link um, to be able to relay those decisions or why certain rationale, um, you know, led to an outcome. But ultimately, you have much more of a shared leadership model and assumption for when you're creating those teams than you might see in other less flat organizations. 
Yeah, yeah, good point. Like often the marketing team rep might report directly to the DAO, not not to mm -hmm. a manager or a central organizing committee mm -hmm. or anything. And then sometimes there's like a project management team, but that's that's they're really not in charge. Still, they're just helping facilitate, but at the same level. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, really, really interesting. All right, that does it for the Just Dowit News Report. Uh, really interesting stories this week. I'm going to do a quick segue, including a brief ad, uh, and then we will uh, get to the deeper interview with Lisa. Um, so the, the ad is, is for my DAO. It's for my company. Um, if anyone listening does not yet know, we do legal entities for DAOs and Web3. We wrote the laws in the Marshall Islands for uh, creating the best legal and regulatory environment in the world for DAOs and Web3. Um, we also have a partner network of lawyers that we can get people connected with. Or if you're a lawyer and you'd like to learn more about what we're doing, please reach out. Uh, we often uh, have an opportunity to give referrals uh, to lawyers as well. So happy to get you into our uh, referral program, which is free as well. Um, so that's MyDAO. Check us out at MyDAO.org. And having uh, gotten a quick ad out of the way, Okay, Lisa, we've already dug into some really great topics related to your work and your expertise, um, but let's take one step back. I don't necessarily want to go as far back as how you got into Web3 in the first place, because we did that last time and people could go check that out. Let's talk about what projects you're working on right now and how they relate to DAOs. So uh, go. Yes. So the biggest project that I've been working on right now is with Token Engineering Commons. And we've spent the summer interviewing, or, or should I say like a few months ago, we spent interviewing 41 different token engineers on the needs, practices, and challenges in the token engineering space. And yes, it supersedes beyond DAOs, but I think it's actually one of the most critical components to how we look at structuring DAOs in the future, especially being more token-based organizations especially since that's one of the areas that other organizations are also interested in and I think have a lot to learn from DAOs is how do you integrate tokens as a form of value exchange into your organization. I think learning from the people who have been engineering it, experimenting with it, been tasked to create it has been extremely fascinating. And so that body of work is what I'm most proud of recently. And um, the report itself comes out in the next couple of months. So really, really excited to share those insights. Cool. And what's the, is the project, how would people find it? Is it called the Token Engineering Project or? Yeah, if you go to the Token Engineering Commons site, and I have a link that I can send you, Adam, to that Great. we can add to this video. So people mm -hmm. can sign up and you'll be able to sign up. So that way, when the report comes out, you get it directly served up to you, which uh, for people listening, we know it's a lot more convenient to get it that way. And yeah. so um, I'll, I'll add a link, but it's what I would consider a landmark study to our knowledge. We don't know of people who have really studied the token engineering field to this extent, um, nor had access to these amazing engineers that are really the ones pioneering the space, writing the first texts on the space doing some of the biggest inventions within the space are all people that we spoke with. Yep. So, so, you know, often when I think about uh, tokens or hear token engineering or something like it, I think about all the way back to like ICOs, right? And, and white papers where people were launching a token and they weren't thinking about it as a DAO yet, um, but it, it was similar in some ways. Um, and also tokenomics, right? So there's mm -hmm. podcasts about tokenomics. There's people who do tokenomics consulting. Um, is this the same as tokenomics or, or what differentiates this work from like a tokenomics study? 
Yeah, so that's fascinating. And that's one of the goals of the study is to really look at tokenomics, token engineering, token economics, um, crypto economics, and to understand like, what is really the difference be behind all these terms, and which ones are best fit for certain scenarios. And because it's still really nascent, having multiple terms isn't a bad thing. It's what allows people to identify and potentially build whole bodies of work underneath those terms. Hmm. And yet what I would say is that often in DAOs, at least in my experience, when you hear people say, oh, I do tokenomics, often when you actually ask them what that means, it means that they're the ones who created a pie chart for treasury allocation. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and so I, I think... I think all these have their place, but I think a lot of the times tokenomics as, as a phrase in particular tends to maybe have less of a, a rigorous underpinning to it than maybe when you hear people talk about crypto economics, token economics, or token engineering. Um, obviously, token engineering is one that places more of the emphasis on the building side of making things for practical use, which the industry term of engineering is often associated with. And then mm -hmm. terms like crypto economics and token economics are obviously have that underpinning more of the financialization of it of because it's tied to the industry term of economics. And mm -hmm. so tokenomics, I love as a Web3 word because it's kind of one that felt like we've created this. It's something brand new. Mm -hmm. But when you really look behind it, often it lacks some of the rigor of engineering or some of the rigor of mm. economics. And so mm. I think token engineering was the name of the study. It, it's called What is Token Engineering? And a lot of that reason is because um, having it be too hyper-financialized with a word like just economics trying to represent it limits its power too much to be so much more than like a DeFi protocol or something that's too financialized, but really truly represents, you know, what a lot of people in the Ethereum community and others really love about the Web3 space, which is the building and the practical use case. Yeah, yeah. So I want to share with the audience why I, I laughed uh, when you said that some people, you know, say they do tokenomics, but really all they do is a pie chart of who gets how many tokens, because um, a lot of folks may be newer to the space. You know, uh, when I think about tokenomics, and again, curious to hear if I get this right, um, but I think about the entire uh, ecosystem of a project or community or some kind of uh, group group of people. Um, and how the token uh, flows through that group and, and what purposes does it serve and what incentives uh, it, uh, the tokens create and how you, how you model that to help achieve the project's goals. So for example, you know, uh, it does start with, well, you're going to create the token. Who who has it, right? It starts with a pie chart, perhaps. Who gets how many tokens and when? And are they locked up? And um, are they vesting, you know, effectively? Um, but then it's well, is there staking? Is there locking? Is are, is there a utility value to the token? Is there some expectation of rewards or dividends or something uh, either today or potentially in the future? And are people are you minting more tokens all the time or not? Are you destroying tokens? Are you are people giving each other tokens for work that takes place in the DAO or as 
has a, a manner of reputation. So like all of these things. And I think when I hear about token, if someone's doing tech- tokenomics well, they're thinking about all of it as much as possible before they launch the token so that the token can help the project achieve its goals. And sometimes I think one of the goals, maybe often is also for the token to, to be valuable. Right? That's part of what will allow the project to succeed um, as well. So it's if, if someone you know says they do tokenomics and they just draw you a, a pie chart, they're missing virtually all of that. Um, did, did I do a good job of explaining tokenomics? Yeah, I think that's great. And you know, like whether you call it like a tokenomics, a token economics, a token engineering process, it is an end and really robust process that ultimately begins with saying like, do you even need a token? Like, why are you doing this? And asking why at a really in-depth level and then trying to understand what is the ecosystem. It's really this like emergence of economics, um, mathematics, finances, and game theory to understand what are the actual behavioral incentives that this token helps facilitate to, to your point, Adam, that like gets you to that outcome or the goal of the project. And also understanding that things never go according to plan. And so how do you compensate for that? How do you understand Mm. that things will go awry? And what are you building? And again, does it even need a token? And so I think that was loud and clear from a lot of the engineers. They're the ones building it. And they said like 90% of the projects that come to me, I don't even think they're vetted out enough to understand why they want a token. They just feel like they should have one. And mm-hmm. so really asking why and getting clear on that flow of how things work and how you'd like to see them work and what outcomes you're desiring, that's like step one. Yeah, interesting. Oh, so interesting. So is there such a thing as like just a governance token? Like, is it ever that simple? Or do you always have to think through all these different uh, elements of a token? Because whether you like it or not, they're going to come into play. Um, I think it can be that simple. I think um, very similarly to how you said there's going to be a DAO for everything. I think you could almost have a token represent anything. And so Mm -hmm. you can even have, you know, like a token represent a real world asset and have it just be like this, like an NFT. You know, it's like you can have something that's like this just represents this. And so it's not that to create a token, you need to have a full token ecosystem. But I think one of the things that was really clear from the people we interviewed is that if you are planning on doing something really complex, if you are looking for mass adoption, that's going to affect a lot of people's lives. And if you are really in the game of, I'm going to build an economic system that hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions might adopt, then engaging a really qualified token engineer up front to actually be thinking through that is is paramount. And not only that, but understanding that you're probably not engaging one person in the future. Right now, we often think Mm. of a token engineer as one person to go talk to, figure out our tokenomics, figure out our token engineering. And really, just like you don't build a bridge with one civil engineer, you have people that are focused on the upfront consulting and configuring phase. You have people that are really designing it out and thinking about token design. You have people that are doing the modeling. They're working in tools like machinations and they're really like figuring out the different possibilities. And then even when you launch, which again, it's so much harder to change anything once it's on chain. So the upfront work is the worthy work. 
And so even when you launch though, understanding that things won't go according to plan and that having a process of audits in place is actually an ethical responsibility to follow through on. A lot of people want to just like have a token, launch it and see where it can fly. Um, or if you have something as simple as like governance and you want to have one token, then, then there are those cases where it might be more simple. But if you're in this space to really create almost like a new token-based world, <laughs> then, mm -hmm. then engaging the end-to-end -end process is the, the worthy and a meaningful and very important work to be thinking through on the front end. Cool. So a lot of us really love tools uh, in technology. What is Machinations? Ah, it's just a modeling tool. You'll in people in game theory use it in particular. So if you're in like um, creating digital worlds in the game space, which to me is probably one of the most um, fun I had interviewing some of these engineers were the ones that came from um, the gaming world. Because mm. to them, they've already created these worlds of millions of users mm. that are have and different incentives and mm -hmm. economies. And so when you look at projects, like often in this space, I think we're struggling to find like what's working well, like what's a project that's working well? Is it just maker because it's still around? Like what is what does success look like? And I think um, to me, often when I hear people talk, I point them to the space of, of these beautiful gaming worlds that show us that you can create digital worlds with digital exchanges, meaningful relationships that are existing in this different space that's maybe not so much in the physical world that still spans nation states and governmental boundaries. And it works and people engage in it and even enjoy their time there. Um, and so to see something like that, and then to realize that often what we're building in DAOs is these very purpose-driven communities that are coming together to accomplish something. I think it's an interesting roadmap to look at that DAOs, depending on your purpose, might not always look to. And mm. so different, different um, systems like machinations will help you do modeling out of different um, outcomes and different scenarios to see what your code and what the things you've designed, how it might play out. And mm, so there, okay. that's just one of other tools that people people will use. CAD-CAD is another one that um, people use in the token engineering space. Hmm. Okay. So I want to ask you a question about something I saw on Farcaster the other day, which if anyone doesn't know is the Web3 uh, social platform that will hopefully unseat Twitter and, and Facebook and all that. Um, uh, someone said that the only real valid use case for staking is if you're gonna slash the stake at some point, right? And that the only reason you should really ask people to stake is, is, is so that they're putting something up that you can take away uh, by, by slashing it. For example, if that person breaks a rule or doesn't do a good job of validating a block, if we're talking about a blockchain, um, something like that. And my initial reaction was to disagree uh, which I, I think you might as well. Um, I was thinking about these models. So like take, for example, a bankless DAO, which is a, a DAO I've always been a part of. It's one of the more popular and successful DAOs. Um, and, but it has a token that some would say has not done very well. You know, the, the price is not that high. You know, people get paid in the native token, but it's not enough to sell and, and live off of. It, 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 it's almost more like uh, it's like mostly volunteering with a little bit of, of reward. And 
Um, and they recently introduced a, uh, they call it time locked, but it effectively, at least to me, I consider it like staking where you, you put up your, your bank tokens into an, a, a contract that creates an NFT and you put, it, you put them up for either one or two years. And you get that NFT and you can't turn it in again for tokens for one or two years. And it's a way of signaling to the DAO that you're committed and, and that you're into it. And as a result, people might, you might get social capital for it. You also get uh, like more POAPs. Uh, you might get uh, maybe a discount on products that the DAO releases. So there could be some benefits in there. Um, uh, and, but my thought was this also helps drive up the value of the token because people are, are, are putting their token into a, a, a contract where they can't sell it, right? There's no way now for me to sell my bank tokens. And so mm -hmm. they're basically being taken off the table and you're encouraging people to take more and more tokens off the table, thus driving up uh, the value of the token. Um, this seems like another great use case. Is, is that common? Uh, do you agree that's another valid use case? Are there others as well? I think that's a valid use case. And I don't think it's super common yet. This is one of those areas where I'd like to see more experimentation. The other thing is I know a lot of people who did gain social capital for locking up and who proudly posted on Twitter and things that like, look, I'm time locked. Look, I'm like bankless proud. And so I think if nothing else, what it did is it generated a lot of goodwill of showing like this isn't a DAO with what the common problem is today, which is retention of really quality talent across a lot of the DAOs, but really kind of almost doubling down on we're still a DAO that's around and has people feeling so confident that we'll be around in two years that they're proudly mm. espousing it and even putting some money on the line to, to say that they believe that. So I think it's a great signaling effect. I think it's almost like a pledge function um, mm -hmm. of people pledging allegiance or people pledging um, their belief in its longevity as an organization. And so I think it has a multitude of benefits that are far beyond being able to like slash something or take something away when, you know, people aren't doing what you want them to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I want to dig into another uh, specific thing with you. This came up yesterday. I was doing a Twitter space with uh, John Poller, who's one of the founders of uh, Opolis. And so mm -hmm. Opolis provides a... Um, a service for uh, contractors of all kinds, um, but especially targeting DAO contributors and provides them with a legal entity of their own and allows them to uh, get uh, benefits like healthcare benefits, retirement benefits, stuff like that. So really great tool for people that are you know, working in this modern economy. Um, but we were arguing about the importance and relevance of nonprofit organizations with governance tokens and whether this really represents like a, 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 a game changing approach to charitable or underfunded uh, endeavors. And, uh, you know, John was arguing uh, that, um, sorry, my dog's barking, if you can hear it. Uh, John was arguing <laughs> that, uh, that that it's that it's that it's not a, a, a huge meaningful change that asking someone to buy a governance token in a nonprofit where there's no future expectation of dividends or rewards is just like asking someone to donate money to a nonprofit in the web two world. Um, to me, though, it is so meaningfully different 
that you are no longer giving your money. Let's talk about Bankless, which again is like effectively a nonprofit, right? It may not have that status, but from no one's making money off of it <laughs> for the most part. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, it's nonprofit. Um, and um, you know, in the case of Bankless, no one has to don't. No one has, and I don't think anyone would want to donate money to Bankless but they don't mind buying some bankless tokens because you are getting something in return. You're getting a governance right. And, and I think governance rights in and of themselves will have value. People want to feel part of something. It brings meaning to their life. It's, it's social capital, it gets to that point, right? It's something you can feel proud about and brag about to your friends. Um, and beyond that, the fact that you might be able to sell it one day if you need to or want to and get some of your money back or maybe even more. Right. Even if it's not 100 times more, right, maybe even more. And that it, it doesn't mean that everyone's just going to come in because they want to make money. And then this is only going to work if the token price goes up forever. But just the fact that you can have a nonprofit with this like market cap that's made up of tokens that you can hold that you can sell if you want to seems so radically different from the old model of nonprofits and charities that I, I just, I think it's, it's, I think it's going to change everything. I don't think it's just another, I don't think it's just like a, a trick that like, well, we're giving you a token. And so now you're going to think it's different. I think it's so meaningfully different. Mm, mm. One, I have so many thoughts on this. Um, one of the token engineers that we, interviewed um said one thing in particular that i i have spent you know the past couple months just chewing on and thinking about more which is that really a lot of the value that comes from this space of you know us trying to make a case for what is the place of web web3 what is our value proposition what is our differentiation all this sort of stuff that actually probably the biggest thing is going to come five to ten years from now when people realize that we really have the cornerstone and the only path forward for true digital provenance. And so when things become even more on chain, even more transparent, or just even more digitally sourced, whether it's through new AI libraries or what, whatever you'd want to think about it as, the fact that um, these insights of showing your affiliations on chain with nonprofits, your time, your mm. um, stake, your um, whatever, like, let's not minimize the value of just the reputational timestamp and mm. verification of the fact that you were involved in these things. That alone for many people is mm. going to be enough. Not to mention you take any sort of charter or association that has a current certification program to it. They are prime in my mind um, to be adapted into more of a web three market where you actually have a token that then once you've achieved certain things, you can trade in for a higher level level token, something like that, that allows you to actually move up in a way that's on chain, fully transparent, completely verifiable and shows like your stake in it, that then you'd be able to, like you said, sell, trade, do other um, economic functions with, I think is wildly interesting. Hmm. Even just alone, um, yeah. an association that I was working with, I I often thought to myself, like, I'm being, I'm paying to become a member. And I was a board member, which you pay more to become. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so I'm paying to be a member. I'm also paying to be a board member. And it was with the International Coaching Federation. So it's a really wonderful group. 
I myself am a certified coach, but it signals something different to say that I'm going above and beyond to contribute to the coaching ecosystem or that I'm in a position to set governance or guidelines for how other people might be thinking about coaching. And so all those things are of deep value to potentially have on chain in a way that can be verified 10, 15 years from now. Um, And to me, that feels very different than right now. What I did was I paid dues and maybe somebody could look it up, but it's not really tied to me as an individual. And unless I tell people about it, it might as well have not have happened in a lot of ways. And so I think there's some very interesting ways of capturing experience and capturing reputation and also capturing affiliation that shouldn't be underestimated. Wow. Such a good point. Yeah. That's such a good point. And I, I, I still want to also emphasize the, the part of it that to me is going to drive so much wealth creation also over the next decade, because we're allowing for something to be capitalized that was not capitalized before. Right. So like, if you look at, a for-profit public company, let's say it's worth a billion dollars. But if you look at their balance sheet, they probably have no money, no cash, right? Maybe a little bit of assets, but probably a lot of debt liabilities. Their revenue might be $50 million, right? Or $100 million. And yet the world has no problem saying this thing's worth a billion dollars. And if you want to sell 1% of it, you can have $10 million, Right. Even if the company has no money. Right. That's a normal way the economy works. It's in fact, the it's the main driver of growth in capitalism. Right. And now for the first time, you can capitalize everything, <laughs> communities, <laughs> right, projects, DAOs of all kinds, even potentially governments, nonprofits, charities, um, software, right? All this stuff gets financialized and capitalized, which also I'm sure will have negative side effects and (laughs) other challenges we have to deal with when you financialize everything. But the amount of wealth that's going to be created by people doing good for Mm -hmm. the first time, because you're bored, right? Mm -hmm. The nonprofit you join where you sit on the board, no one can take money out. There's no mm-hmm. way to take money out. It's it's one way. It goes in, it gets spent on the mission, that's it. Mm-hmm. If that nonprofit, because people were buying its tokens and attributed a value to it, even just for reputational purposes, now has a market cap of a billion dollars and can mm-hmm. sell tokens to generate $10 million in additional revenue mm-hmm. to achieve its mission, that's it's mm-hmm. just incredible to think that we can capitalize this whole sector of the world, all kinds of parts of the world that were never mm-hmm. capitalized before. It's just mm-hmm. going to be incredible. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And like you said, I know there's going to be a lot of people listening who would say like, that's the hyper financialization that I don't want to happen. And at the same time, I would again say like, this is the perfect time in human history for us to be experimenting and for us to be expanding options to be able to assess fit. There will be times when capitalizing of what been considered a financial or a capitalized institution will be the best fit. And so understanding like where that fit is, that's what we're allowing ourselves to do by experimenting, which I think yeah. that's really exciting. Such a good point. Okay. Do you want to also talk about Talent DAO and what you're working on there? What's going on with, with that DAO? Um, yes. So Talent DAO, first off, I want to say that we've had the pleasure of working with you, Adam. So I think that's <laughs> a very exciting thing. 
um, mm -hmm. to know that Renee, who's our founder in particular, has been really good at making sure the people within Talent DAO are protected. Um, one of the things that I did most recently sharing on the topic of leadership and DAOs, well, specifically leadership and governance was the topic and focus of a panel that I did at East Milan last month. And one of the biggest things there that just became more apparent to me was how important it is for us to be letting people know on the front end about what their potential exposure is mm -hmm. and also what um, they need to be considering when they, they play in this space. And so I know it's an intimidating time for people um, to be trying to figure out like, am I okay if I work here, if I operate here? But most importantly, I think I would continue to extend the invitation to say that it doesn't cost you anything to be learning about the space, immersing in the space, and to be focused on studying it in various ways. And Talent Dow has been my home to be able to look at conducting research, which I primarily did um, in 2022, did a year long study on leadership in DAOs. And a lot of the work that I've been doing since has been with Token Engineering Commons in 2023. But ultimately, all the work that I've done in this space is to study it and to learn it and to try to make it a better place for human beings to work. Um, but what became very clear at East Milan was that regulation is coming and it's, it's coming with a, a vengeance in a lot of ways. And so being aware of what you're getting into is probably the more mature lens that I've seen develop on the space over the last couple of years. And I'd be curious, Adam, to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I mean, one initial thought is just that another thing people need to be really concerned about, aside from like legal risk, like you know, and, and and legal liabilities, is tax liabilities. And look, at the end of the day, the worst that could happen is the IRS is going to come after you for some portion of the money you've made, right? It may maybe maybe a fine, and and maybe if that number is a lot higher than you expected, um, or you weren't expecting it at all, you've already spent the money. And now you don't have to, you don't have the money to pay the taxes, and so maybe that's a good kind of uh, backup plan as, until until you really understand the tax implications of what you're getting involved in is just to hold on to some money. But in the meantime, using legal entities and and just you know getting getting the lawyers if you can, getting tax advisors, f making sure the or an organization you're joining has a approach an approach to taxes, right? Either that it's planning on or becoming or is a nonprofit organization that's not going to be taxed or that it has some kind of legal approach, um, taxes are going to be another big one. And, and I guess I should say it's not only about what you actually receive. So if you're part of a DAO, that, let's say, let, let's use like the simplest possible example. DAOs are not this simple, but let's say you own 1% of a DAO, right? Which no one would really know. Do you own it? Do you not own it today, right? It's a little more nuanced than that. But let's say you owned 1% of a DAO or the IRS wants to say you own 1% of a DAO because that's how it looks to them. And that DAO earned a million dollars in profit and then, and, and then went and did other stuff with it. You will personally be held liable for taxes on 10% of a million dollars of earnings even though you never saw a cent of that money. That's probably the biggest tax risk that I think people are putting themselves into is that if DAOs are making money and they have not handled their tax issue through a legal entity or some other means, it could end up as a personal tax liability. Mm, mm, that's huge. Um, one of the questions that came up at East Milan that I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on is when people are designing DAOs and thinking through their DAO structure, if they have a token gated membership, 
that that actually increases the exposure to anyone joining their DAO because now they've essentially like staked or put something out there that's more contractually said that they're a part of the DAO than if they don't do token gating and have it more be a come one, come all. And I'm curious in, in your mind, what are the legal implications for designing a DAO that's maybe got more of a selective community versus a totally open community? It's interesting. I mean, one thing that comes to mind is just the thought that anything you do with another party can be construed as a contract or agreement with that party. So even if there is a terms of entering a Discord server and it says XYZ and you join the Discord server and you check a box and you say, okay, yeah, I agree. That's almost, if not 100% as enforceable as actually signing a contract, right? And that's why like all the terms of use and privacy policy and the everything you have to agree to when you use a new piece of software, that's why it really is enforceable and it's enforced all the time um, uh, because it really is like signing a contract. And so that's my first thought is just that even doing something as simple as joining a Discord server, maybe, you know, putting you into some position of rights or obligations, um, and certainly every other action that you take can do the same thing, right? And so if you're buying a token, um, it not only matters that you bought the token, but the context in which you bought the token. So did the DAO have something on their website that says by buying the token, you agree to the following or by buying the token, it makes you a member or owner or, or they might say, Buying a token gives you no rights and no responsibilities. It's like, we don't know what the token's for yet. We don't, we don't, we're not going to try to make the value go up, like buy it if you want, right? That, mm -hmm. that very much actually puts the organization in a much safer position um, if that's genuinely what they're telling people. Um, and often the bigger risk associated with tokens falls on the organization and or the people who started it, depending on how they've structured the organization for being the ones who sold the token, as opposed to falling on the person who buys the token. But those are the things I would think about is, you know, is, is there some language somewhere that infers what buying the token means? And, and then you can probably trust that if, if you end up in court, you can point to that language and say, well, look, here's what they told me. That was my expectation at the time that I bought it. Um, versus if, if there's nothing like that, then it's, it's probably more of an unknown. Mm -hmm. I think for all the things you're sharing and many other reasons, um, I heard someone say recently, like the days of joining the DAO ecosystem by signing up to 30 different DAOs on Discord are over. And I think a lot of it has to do with that, the total like increased exposure. And so to me, that only presents an opportunity for other organizations to come in and say, how do you learn about these DAOs then? And how do you make your choices without having to join all the discords? And yeah. so, yeah, I think it comes back to, again, understanding your purpose and aligning the work that you're excited about with that purpose. Totally. And, you know, another thought comes to mind that might be helpful. And just as a reminder, which I'll do a disclaimer at the end to I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I'm literally not a lawyer. So it's definitely not legal advice ever. Anything I say or that. <laughs> Me that's neither. Ever, yeah. Right. So, uh, so not legal advice. Um, that said, um, my understanding in the in the United States, and this could be different in, in different places um, for sure, is that, you know, courts and the government are usually pretty reasonable when it comes to trying to assign liability or tax, even tax liability in cases where a group of people is doing something together. 
And what I mean by that is that if the group of people, for example, is coming together to like study leadership, you're probably not going to have a lot of problems. Like it's just your risks are so much lower than if you're coming together to launch a DeFi protocol where people are like buying options on cryptocurrencies or something like that. Right. And that's, and people have gotten in trouble for that because their options and options are clearly regulated under us law. And so if you're involved in that, there could be some risk. Right. Um, and uh, similarly, if you're trying to make money, if, if you're trying to make money and potentially profiting off of something, even potentially profiting, the government's going to treat you very differently from if you really are just like, for example, you know, I live on kind of an island and the island, you know, has like an island association. And we've tried to, I have tried to help us figure out, should we incorporate? Should we not incorporate? Do we owe taxes? Do we not? And the advice that we've received is like, you're probably fine. Like you're just a bunch of people trying to have a Christmas party. Like the government is not going to try to treat you as a, as a, like a corporation for tax purposes or something. Um, so that it also makes a really big difference. Like what is the activity you're actually engaging in? Is it charitable? Are you doing things that could be construed as against the law or having to follow very specific regulations? Or again, are you doing leadership research mm -hmm. as you do, which is yeah. relatively <laughs> low risk. Now, if you yeah. start making millions of dollars yeah. off of your leadership research, you, then it's a bigger risk. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I hope you do. If yeah. you haven't already. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Uh <laughs> I, I do think um, that lines up really well with, I remember when the Uki Dao case was coming out more so about the fact that the US government felt like they were actually a really easy Dao to go after because a lot of the discourse on Discord or aims and focuses were more overtly about circumventing the government. And so just them yeah. having that, they felt like this is actually the perfect case to go after, whereas yeah maybe that wouldn't have been the case had they gone about it differently. And, you know, it's just one of those interesting things where how you go about the work and how you're positioning yourself really is going to also be factored in, not just the, you know, brass tacks facts. It's also the fact that we're humans and there's the social expectation of what's your intent and what's our perceived um, intent that you have. So yeah, totally. Yeah. Intent is huge. And in, in I think most Western law, at least uh, makes yeah. a big difference. Um, yeah. So the last question I, I usually ask people, and I'm sure I asked you, you last time is what advice do you have for people starting DAOs today? So like if someone walked up to you on the street and said, I'm starting a DAO tomorrow, like what's your advice? And I want to caveat this question by saying a lot of people have the same answer to that as what you said earlier about launching a token, which is, are you sure you really want to start a DAO or is a DAO really the yeah. right like like structure for this. So let's pretend for a second that it is, right? You really are starting a DAO and we've already been through, are you sure you want to start a DAO? What's yeah. the next uh, number one piece of advice that you would have for someone? Mm, mm. Two are coming to mind, so I'll give them. Please. One of which is um, to spend the quality time to get very clear on what your initial purpose is. And also be willing to, with the first few people that join you, and then as it grows, to be willing to evolve that in a way that's representative of the group's perspective. So put a stake in the ground, but then be willing to move it around a bit as, as the community forms and shapes. Um, because you ultimately want that purpose to be representative of more than just you. 
And so that would be one thing to think about, but the purpose is the reason for being. So don't skip past that. If you know you need mm -hmm. to be a DAO, then get really crystal clear on what your reason for being a DAO really is. So you can communicate it to others and attract the right people. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of comes into the second part. The second part is really also um, being wise about who those first few people are that you attract and also that are pulled into the fold. Just picture them, you know, mm -hmm. like your first maybe like six to eight people. If you multiplied them out, do they look like a community you're excited to be a part of? Because a lot of people are starting DAOs and then realizing they just started with their other like fellow crypto bros. And now they're trying to become a more diverse DAO and it's just not happening. And they're wondering why. And I think oftentimes the proactive way of getting ahead of that is making sure your more founding members team, um, those initial small groups that are advancing work are, are representative of what how you want your DAO to grow. It's way easier to address um, getting diversity of thought and perspectives, countries, markets, all those things um, early on versus later on. And then um, my big key message that I tell people when it comes to leadership in the space is if you all see yourself as leading, which I view anybody advancing the work of the DAO as leading in a DAO. So if that is you, um, I tell people to appreciate to accelerate. Your work will go faster and farther mm. if you spend a lot of your time appreciating the fellow people who are in the trenches with you, who are doing the work with you, and that you see as really valuable partners um, to the DAO. And so just spend the time to appreciate them. A lot of people aren't getting paid. A lot of people are wondering how to retain talent these days. And honestly, you would be surprised at how much just hmm. acknowledging people and having them feel seen and heard and appreciated, how far that goes in today's market. So I would wow. double down on that. Wow. Very cool. Thank you. Great advice. I love it. All right. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Uh, this has been awesome, Lisa, just like last time. And, and whenever I get to talk to you, um, where can people find you and your project or projects on the web and on social? And I know you're going to give us a link later, which we'll put in the show notes. Uh, but anything yes. else you'd like to share? Um, well, first off, I want to say thank you, Adam. It is always such a joy to spend time with you and to see you at conferences. You just exude this amazing, contagious energy. And it's been a privilege to have our paths cross in many ways. And I would say, yes, well, well um, deserved acknowledgement. You're, um, I think, one of the bright spots in the ecosystem. Um, and so I would say if people want to connect with me, the best way is to just follow me on Twitter. You can do Twitter, Telegram, whatever works best for you, even LinkedIn for, for those more traditional folks that might be tuning in. Um, and it's all at Lisa Woken. So L-I-S-A and then W-O-C-K-E-N. Um, that is the fastest, easiest way to stay up to date with all that I'm working on. And then the other thing I'd share is um, not only will I share a link to Token Engineering Commons, but also if you're interested in researching the DAO ecosystem or research that Talent DAO has done in the past, you can visit us at talentdao.io, and that's T-A-L-E-N-T-D-A-O.io. And so those are the best ways to keep up to date with what's hip happening. <laughs> Amazing. And are you on Farcaster yet? I am on Farcaster. That's right. I meant to awesome. mention that too, because you were saying it's going <laughs> to, and I'm like, I'm there. So yeah, <laughs> I should have led with that. Just follow me on Farcaster. No need to go to the other places. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually much more active now on Farcaster. It's like Twitter or X still feels like I have to do it for like business yeah. reasons. 
And but Farcaster is actually fun right now. I, I hope it, yeah. I hope that we don't lose that as it grows. Um, yeah. Uh, folks, you can find me on Twitter or X if you want to at zero X Thriller or on Farcaster. I'm the Thriller, and my DAO is my DAO DS for directory services on Twitter or mydao.org, M-I-D-A-O.org. Again, uh, thank you so much, Lisa. Uh, none of this ever is legal or tax advice because we're not lawyers and we're not tax advisors. Um, so please consult those folks if you want to. And for the audience, are you thinking about starting a DAO? Just DAO it. <laughs>